0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really happy to reflect back on an incredible run in 2020. Very difficult year, but an amazing time to be looking at trends in learning and the future of work, higher ed, K-12, lifelong learning, you name it. And today's show, we're going to bring back clips from our most popular shows throughout the year, beginning with a conversation I had with. Angela Seifer, who's the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. We got together in the middle of March in the thick of the initial first wave of COVID. And Angela and team were doing heroic work trying to get access for uh, folks who have trouble bridging the digital divide. And uh, if you haven't checked out what Angela and folks at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and DIA are doing, you should certainly do that. And I'll be back in a bit as we review some more of the biggest shows from 2020.
1: So digital inclusion is the activities that would get us to digital equity. So it's important to think about both of the terms. Digital equity is the goal where individuals and communities have access to the information communication technologies that they need to do anything. But then digital inclusion is how we get there. So this is affordable home broadband, it's digital literacy trainings, it's the appropriate devices, it's the right apps. And as you described it, this new world order that we're living in, that looks a lot different than it did just a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah. One of the, the turns of phrase that I've been hearing a lot and I've been using is how the, the COVID-19 pandemic, the coronavirus, is a forcing function for change, good and bad, most, mostly bad, but one of the the changes I think is just awareness around the criticality of digital access to livelihood, survival, public health. Could you expand on that a bit?
1: Yes, there's definitely been an increased awareness that if you do not have internet at home, if you do not have a computer at home, because a mobile phone doesn't always cut it, particularly today, if you don't have the digital skills to use those tools, how are you surviving if we are all supposed to be sheltering in place? Mm -hmm. The announcement recently that the health systems can use Medicare to cover telehealth visits. That is completely dependent upon those patients having an internet connection at home, having a device and being comfortable adding the app that the health system tells them to add. Mm -hmm. Some are ready to do that and some are not. Right. the uses for all of us to just survive today like we could just count them off one by one right you can do your banking you can stay connected to your family you can work you can learn everything but i think the biggest thing for us to also recognize is the public safety aspect if an individual or household does not have that connection at home they're going to leave the house
0: right
1: and we don't want folks leaving the house Mm -hmm. either they are going to contract it themselves or they could spread it either way we want folks to stay at home. You have to have an internet connection right. in order to, there's a small percentage of people who are going to have a great time without an internet connection, but would any of the listeners agree with that? Would mm-hmm. they want to do that? Would you want to be like, oh, it's cool. I'll just read books.
0: <laughs> right. And especially because so much of the solutions is their apps. If I didn't have access to Amazon here in Brooklyn over the last month, I guess I would have been spending more time at Costco, and and in the reality yes, is that even, in my context we have the choice to leave the house or not. If you don't have access to digital, you almost have to leave the house. And You've then... lost your. Ch- There's no choice. No choice indeed. But fortunately, it does uh, sound like from our, a recent return engagement we had with Angela that some progress is being made and. There are many folks on the front lines of digital inclusion who are doing heroic work and uh, kudos to them. And uh, thanks again to Angela for uh, being our guest for our most download show. Our second most download show also released right in the thick of COVID was with Adi Hanash, who's a, a very experienced live online instructor. I knew him for years at Kaplan before he moved on to... Work at General Assembly, really lead their live online initiative there. And Adi's always been a fantastic instructor, but also someone who can unpack some of the subtler aspects of being really great at teaching online. And we're going to pick up with his conversation from back in March. The number
2: one thing is when you go to teaching online over the last 10 to 12 years, the proliferation of some of the blended learning models and flipped classroom models that have started to change the way you might approach teaching online. I would argue that all of this technology, when you're teaching yourself or you're training others to teach, your goal is to take the technology that's in front of you and remove it as an obstacle or barrier to do what you do best and I train instructors pretty frequently still and work with different organizations to help them get their staff ready to move to online facilitation or online education. And the number one thing I always say is, this isn't about changing your personality, it's not about creating a formality, it's actually about saying who you are in the classroom, how you teach, your style, your personality, has a way to translate online. The key is to find the right technology to translate it in the right way. You have an infinite number of distractions a Google search away, That your job now as an online educator, leading a live session online, is that you are bringing their attention back constantly to the material, and that's your responsibility. And that's pretty much where the evolution of how I thought about online education has changed my approach to either the implementation or the training on it, is just how do you maximize the engagement and the different ways a person can engage with you in a classroom to keep focus and keep attention? Accountability is the number one reason why people do courses with instructors. So how can you maintain accountability in an online scenario? Otherwise, why aren't we just Googling for every piece of information we want to learn or finding videos on YouTube? There, What is the reason we want the live interaction? It's that accountability and that engagement aspect to make sure that I'm actually doing the things I'm supposed to be doing and learning them accordingly.
0: So much to learn from... Adi's Perspective, a really great episode worth listening to, uh, and apparently had a lot of appeal out there because that was our second most downloaded show in the year. We're going to come back to more shows that were released in March, but, uh, but our third most downloaded show, interestingly, was with Dr. Rich Milner, who wrote a really fascinating book called Start Where You Are But Don't Stay There, addressing opportunity gaps and trying to educate instructors on how to deal with race. I sat down with Rich over the summer. Uh, really in the thick of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that happened in 2020. And this show really captured a lot of the thinking. And I really was uh, appreciative of Rich sharing his voice with me and our listeners to help us get some perspective. One of the things he talked about was how teaching is race work. and, And he also talked a lot about the importance of grace. So with that, we'll pick up with Rich Milner here again, really fascinating thinker from Vanderbilt University. Take it away, Rich.
3: In fact, I would argue we don't have achievement gaps anyway. We really have uh, gaps in caring. And we have mm-hmm. gaps in grace and gaps in vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And when you talk mm-hmm. about grace, administrators really need to have a lot of grace with their teachers. Mm-hmm. And in a very similar way, teachers, I'm begging you, have grace mm-hmm. uh, with the students and the families with whom you're working. Mm-hmm. Part of of how we get to uh, and reimagine, again, thinking about possibilities and opportunities Mm -hmm. here is we shepherd ourselves into a place where we understand that while you're hurting and the things that you're grappling with and going through, some two are family members. Mm -hmm. Some two are your your students' family members. And so on a macro level, I'm I'm putting forth (laughs) the notion that we should put a moratorium on, on standardized testing. Mm-hmm. I don't think in this moment, that is not what's most important. Right. You know, test scores. Right? We should put a moratorium on grades mm-hmm. that go on students' uh, formal transcripts forever. Right. right, right, right. I think we should, you know, of course, we need formative assessments. Yeah. But But again, how can we use this moment to get better? We think because we've done a thing in a way for so long that we don't, Need to you know to to make shifts, and so when we think about COVID, and we think about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, like what you gonna do when turn in his or her or their assignment? Yeah, right. what you gonna do when a student, a young person, can't log on right. uh, to the internet because right. the internet is they don't have access or right. Right. with the computer, or when our older students won't. Log in. Right. Right. What are you going to do when the when a young person when we are face to face again, right? When right. a young person doesn't have his, her, or their mask on, right? right. right. What kind of dress code Violet? Like, we have an opportunity mm-hmm. to to deeply reimagine how we do school.
0: Fantastic stuff there with Rich. Uh, I do really recommend his book. It's out from Harvard Education Press. Really do recommend checking out Dr. Rich Milner out of Vanderbilt University. Another guest uh, who was really profound in her thinking and uh, was right in that thick of the first wave of COVID was Helen Lee Bweeg, who's the founder of the Reboot Foundation, an organization that's focused on helping folks develop critical thinking skills, particularly in children. And uh, she had a really fascinating origin story coming out of the corporate world and then really in light of raising her children, came to understand the importance of developing critical thinking at a very early age. This is a theme we've been hearing throughout the year, and Helen and the team at Reboot are doing some really interesting work. Let's hear a little bit of the conversation next.
4: So my background is actually I've been in business for the last 25 years. I I originally have been more focused on being a restructuring professional. That means helping companies that are in difficulty turn around their companies. So Mm -hmm. That's been my historical professional background. And since a couple of years now, I'm what some people call a professional board member. So I'm on six different uh, publicly listed company boards and Mm -hmm. helping them through, including right now, a lot of the challenges that they're going through, the coronavirus, because obviously it has major economical impact on businesses. But the real genesis of why I decided to fund and create the Reboot Foundation was twofold one was in my business experience i tried to assess what is one of the most important skill sets that business leaders need in terms of how they think through make judgment calls in their day-to-day as well as critical business moments and it always came back to the subject of critical thinking and the ability for individuals to do and on top of that i had a bit of an aha moment a couple of years ago my daughter is nine years old today, but it was back when she was six. She came home one day from school and she asked for my computer because she had to write 10 uh, sentences on one of the French kings. And a six-year-old's immediate reaction for a school homework to ask for my computer to want to go to Wikipedia and look up information seemed to be quite an alarming dimension that I hadn't actually taken a pause and thought through what does it mean as a parent to educate your child in this digital age when everything is about instant gratification where you're looking for information right at the tip of your hands mm-hmm. that unfortunately is combined with blogs institutional sources wikipedia that some population believes that's the same synonym for encyclopedia and and so it got me into thinking and and that's when i decided that i wanted to fund research especially around helping us all to think about how we need to educate our children differently so that they become better critical thinkers in this environment today.
0: Yep, and that's hugely relevant for parents and children and educators, but it's also hugely relevant for lifelong learners. Your experience, I imagine, as a board member and someone who's helped organizations lead turnarounds, challenges around good critical thinking good reasoning skills in support of decision making is not just relevant to educating children. It's actually relevant
2: for all of us.
4: I think so. And it's one of those things that I think one of the first studies that we did at the Rebut Foundation was actually a survey. We interviewed over a thousand people in France and in the US. And I'm probably going to mention France a lot on this podcast, but it's because I'm actually based in Paris, France. So Mm -hmm. that's a little bit of the context. But And it's amazing how in that survey, everybody said that critical thinking was important, but then when you probed in terms of asking the questions such as more detailed questions around whether or not we actually practice critical thinking, for example, looking for an opposing view, over 30% of the people said that they deliberately avoided people who have an opposing view. Mm -hmm. And also when we asked the question, at what age should parents be teaching critical thinking to children? It was completely varied from early young childhood to 18 years old to, it was completely across the board, mm-hmm. including one of the questions that we ask is who should be teaching critical thinking to children? And that question was also very varied in, in the responses of which 22% thought that children themselves should teach themselves critical thinking. Mm. So that So it was a little bit of an eye-opener to realize that everybody fundamentally believes that critical thinking is important. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because they read a McKinsey report that says it's going to be one of the three most critical s- skills in the future economy for adults in terms of their skill set. Yep. But it's but people understand that it's important. But then when they actually think and say, what does that mean from a day to day? What I need to practice? What I need to think about? What I need to do differently? It becomes a lot more vague, doesn't it?
0: Great stuff there with Helen diving into the importance of critical thinking And we touched a lot on the fourth industrial revolution and the ways of automation that are uh, upon us and how to carve out the spaces that are critical for humans in future jobs to stay resilient these days. And that's where critical thinking factors in tremendously. We also wound up talking earlier in the year, pre-COVID, to Frank Britt, who's the CEO of Penn Foster about middle-skilled employees and how to train them, how to upskill them. He made some interesting predictions about the future of work. We'd love to get Frank back on the show, but I think some of his thinking about the importance of middle-skilled workers, also known as frontline workers, uh, which he even mentioned at the time, turned out to be profound in that they, in many ways, were the folks who were the frontlines of the pandemic response. And with that, let's pick up with uh, a little bit of my conversation with Frank, explaining what Penn Foster is and a little bit of what his focus uh, was back in the beginning of 2020.
5: Why don't I start with the present and then tag back to the original notion of what Penn Foster was and is. Uh, Penn Foster is an organization today that premised on the notion that there's a very large, meaningful percentage of our workforce, middle-skilled workers, that are in need of ongoing training, upskilling, and alike. like but lack either access and or affordability to getting the kinds of support they need to mobilize in their careers. And so the Penn Foster Institution's charter is to try to help people make the thoughtful choices for them at this moment in a changing economy and a changing workforce and put them on a path for economic mobility, skill attainment, and ultimately uh, greater empowerment to to take better control of wherever they go with their careers. Penn Foster itself, the enterprise, is of some scale. We're, I think, the largest or among the largest platform companies in the country that explicitly and exclusively focuses on the middle-skilled workforce, or what some people call the, the frontline workforce. It's a part of the economy that I think is uh, underappreciated in terms of its scale and scope. There's about 130 million adults at work in the United States, half of whom are actually middle-skilled workers, which are roughly defined by the Department of Labor as people with an associate degree or less. And so that's the workforce that we're preoccupied with. We tend to think of the education system at large as a $1.3 trillion market in the United States, you had K-12 on one end, higher education, the other, and there's this large opaque market in the middle, roughly two to $300 billion, according to some estimates, and we call that the workforce development marketplace. And that's where we're most preoccupied as Mm -hmm. to how we got here. We got here because way back a long time ago, 129 years ago. There was a series of mining accidents in Pennsylvania, and this fellow Thomas Foster came to realize that one of the root causes was a lack of training. And so thus was born the International Correspondence School, which sent out its first uh, book by mail in 1890. And through its history, its very storied history, the International Correspondence School, which then became ICS for most of the 20th century, has educated you know, literally tens of millions of people. But the consistent narrative from really its inception, is focused on the blue-collar workforce, as it was once known. And to the present, we've remained true to that brand idea that there's another half of the economy that needs support. And uh, we're an organization that's committed to trying to to make that happen.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. And I was mentioning when we were setting up here that I think I've fall, fallen prey to the same trap that's out there when thinking about education and the workforce writ large, is to focus on maybe the, the top end of the workforce, the most highly skilled in demand engineering, computer science, data science, all the, the, the new hotness, all the trendier things that, that folks talk a lot about. But what I found really interesting about your perspective is that you're focusing on workers who in many ways are the front lines of the new wave of automation that we're all anticipating. And I've heard you talk in a really interesting way about the future of work, and I'd love to hear from your perspective what people frequently get wrong and perhaps what they get when thinking about the future of work, and then specifically thinking about the future of work as it relates to to middle-skilled workers.
5: I think the first thing they, uh, quote, get wrong is they just don't appreciate the scale and scope of the size of this market. we got, you know, almost half the workforce in the United States are middle-skilled, and while there's lots of apocalyptic narratives regarding automation, which we'll likely come back to you later, the reality is if you were to do a scan of the job openings in the United States today, about half the job openings in the United States today are actually middle-skilled related jobs.
4: Mm-hmm. Now
5: those jobs are going through, like all jobs, quite a bit of transformation. But just because the manufacturing facility has more auto- automation, it doesn't mean the job doesn't exist. It just means the job design exists. So what we see happening is the underlying job designs are absolutely changing through cognitive augmentation, the use of machine learning. and But the, the jobs themselves, not in all cases, but in many cases, will remain. We've just finished a very sizable proprietary study, for example, in manufacturing, which is a, a very topical issue in, in the mainstream media. And what we found, this is an empirical study coupled with you know, hundreds of interviews with employers, it is the case that there is a modest contraction of the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States. However, if you look at it from our perspective, which is the need for upskilling and training, interestingly, that number actually goes up in that context because while the number of humans that are needing to be reskilled is modestly declining, the magnitude of the reskilling is actually growing. And so it nets out to be, from an indexing perspective, more aggregate demand for uh, upskilling and reskilling, even in the manufacturing sector, which would be but a typical target of people talking about the future of work and and jobs going away. So I think the general meta-miss is big market that has real opportunity, but it also has unique complexities. There are academic, financial, and emotional design considerations if you think about what is the optimal learning experience for this particular cohort that is very different than serving a traditional white-collar professional. And so part of why we've been able to carve out to some degree, a, a, a sort of a positional scarcity, and by that, an institution that occupies a part of the larger education economy that is somewhat underserved and historically uh, ignored is that uh, there just aren't that many other institutions of our scale that are preoccupied with this unique cohort of creating solutions for them that help them achieve both their financial, academic, and, and ultimately career-related objectives. So I think that's a big miss, is it's a big challenge, a big opportunity. The good news is, and we can talk more about this, there are new voices emerging in the ecosystem that are shining the light on this part of the economy. And I think it might be a good segue to talk about uh, what are those new voices, in particular the voice of the employer, which mm-hmm. as from our conversations, is really becoming uh, the megaphone that's going to change not just the larger education system, but particularly the, the narrative relative to the middle-skilled workforce.
0: Some real foresight and vision there from Frank. Someone we definitely want to get back in touch with and trends around upskilling, outskilling, and middle skill as employees are certainly still front of mind when you think about the future of work and the transformative year that we've been through. Another thing to think about as we explore the future of learning is what formats, uh, what media formats make the most sense to learners and how does audio factor into that? When I think about educational audio, which hopefully everyone understands by now I'm really passionate about, one of the people I look to for uh, insight and perspective is Zachary Davis, who's the vice president of content for Himalaya. At the time, he was starting something called Lyceum, which was a curated educa- educational audio platform. Zach's a really interesting thinker. He does a podcast called Writ Large and another one called The Ministry of Ideas. Really appreciated getting him on the show and I look forward to getting more of his perspective in the future. Let's listen to a little bit of my conversation with Zach now.
7: So about seven years ago, I heard about a new initiative called edX. And I was invited uh, to apply at HarvardX, which was the group that was going to be making Harvard's free, massive open online courses. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the very first employees of HarvardX and it was a a really exciting time. It was like a blank canvas in which we could rethink how can we educate the world with some of the world's best scholars. And so we really focused a lot on two things, uh, really good video production Mm -hmm. and really engaging uses of technology in the form of assessments or activities or discussion. And so over the course of seven years working at Harvard X, I worked on a lot of amazing projects, amazing courses. One of the first ones was about early Christianity, and it was a course about the, the letters of Paul. And we filmed the professor teaching, and we added these great animations to make it really engaging. We even created this cool, what we called a time map, which showed you both where the, map, where the letter was written in the Middle East and when. And so you could see the path of these letters and it was really exciting. And when we launched, the professor that I worked with was used to seminars of 10 people Mm -hmm. and we had 30,000 people sign up to take this course. Mm
4: -hmm.
7: And that was the kind of scale that got everyone extremely excited about MOOCs and about online courses. And wow, maybe we can dramatically lower the cost of education through, through these new technologies. But pretty quickly, we encountered some struggles, which was very few people actually completed these courses. Very few people got through them. They would click on the first activity, the first first day, and then they would never come back. And so some of these completion rates are abysmal, like 1% to 3%. Mm -hmm. Now, I consoled myself at the time by saying lots of people browse books at a library, they open the first page, not everyone takes it home. But when you would look at how many people were actually completing these courses and presumably getting you know the most out of them, it was lower than the enthusiasm behind right. these courses. About three or four years ago, though, I like many many Americans started listening to podcasts on my way to work, right. and it quickly became part of my day. And I quickly realized how powerful audio can be, both in terms of communicating ideas and knowledge, but also because it fits people's lifestyles a lot better. And one of the reasons I think people don't finish any of these MOOCs is because they're on screens all day for work. And when they come home, they don't want more screens. And they're too busy to sit down with no distractions on a desktop or something Mm -hmm. and, and proceed. I became convinced that audio was the best way to share knowledge. And I had been wanting to work on my own education project, and so I started this show called Ministry of Ideas. And Ministry of Ideas was designed to take the great conversations uh, that I was having while a student at Harvard Divinity School and share that with more people. And each episode is on a different topic, a different concept, the, the theology of history or cannibalism or world's fairs. And we give you history and philosophy and cultural criticism. It was really successful. And my my podcast started getting more listeners than a lot of the Harvard faculty courses that I was working on, and I think it had more to do with the medium than the message. Mm -hmm. I was really captivated by education and audio, and in 2018, I started a a conference called Sound Education, Mm
4: -hmm. and
7: we didn't know what kind of response we would get. I didn't even know that many educational podcasters, but we managed to get Dan Carlin to be our keynote that first year. And, and then I learned about hundreds and hundreds of amazing independent educational podcasters who came together in Boston for a few days, and it was magic. Mm-hmm. And when we were all in a room and all learning about each other's work and our excitement and our audience engagement and um, all these things, I, I really started to realize that we were comprising a brand new universal university that we were a kind of invisible network of educators united by this new medium and and so i was hooked and have been ever since
0: great stuff there from zach check him out ministry of ideas is his original podcast and his new podcast is writ large He's also doing interesting work at Himalaya, all uh, areas of educational audio that are worth uh, spending a little time understanding better. Thanks again to Zach for his perspective. And in, in addition to our amazing guests, we've also done many of our recurring shows. So we did a series of shows on our March Madness tournament, which was won by generational zeitgeists in an interesting matchup with digital inclusion in the finals. It's something we've been doing for each of the last four years. It's something we look forward to every spring. And I was very happy to get through that tournament in the spring. We also did our Gartner Hype Cycle show, which is another popular topic. Thanks again to Dan and Melissa for their regular contributions and to all the varied guests who we were able to get on the show throughout 2020. And here we are talking a bit about the Gartner Hype Cycle. In the early fall,
8: yeah. So they take their top ten uh, strategic technology trends and they group them into some trends are affecting people, are very people centric, like changes the way people work, live their lives, and then trends that are, are around smart spaces, which mm-hmm. is a big emerging. I think they even did uh, their own hype cycle around the digital space, and that's because that trend is being accelerated It's one of the things that's been accelerated from the COVID virus. So mm-hmm. on the people centric side, there's they have hyper automation, they have uh, multi-experience democratization which i I love to pronounce that word but that's an interesting one that i think is going to is is super relevant to the work world Mm -hmm. human augmentation and another one that is one of my favorite topics uh is covered on this which is transparency and traceability especially around data and how data is being leveraged that's on the people-centric side and then on the smart spaces side empowered edge which is way too technical for me, so
0: maybe one of you guys can explain that can I think we... it 's just the Internet of things and yeah. rather than have to go to central servers yeah and a lot of that is to allow yeah. for the design of, of spaces, Internet of things, yeah. drones It does get very black mirror, I think when you start mm-hmm. digging into some of this yeah. stuff, like there is a lot of blurring of distinctions between humans and and machines, really interesting stuff each year it 's a lot of fun. And we'll be covering that in more detail as we head into 2021. Melissa Griffith was also a graduate of Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern University. And one of the instructors up there is Dr. Mohan Soni, who uh, graced us with his perspective on the future of the MBA and how business school needs to reimagine itself, much like all other aspects of instructional delivery are facing some tough challenges and trying to understand how to evolve quickly in response to the complex changes that we're facing in this year. So with that, I'll pick up with my conversation with Melissa and Dr. Mohan Saudi out of Kellogg School of Business.
9: This has been a crazy uh, past few months, as all of you can imagine. Our business as we know it was turned on its head, uh, whether it is executive education or MBA classrooms. We are as most top business schools are in a difficult uh, position because we sell a very high price premium product,
2: mm-hmm.
9: uh, which is premised on the value of the in person experience and the socialization that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the span of a few weeks, we were forced to transition and turn and ter- 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 everything into uh, virtual and digital experience. And we still have uh, a lack of clarity around when we will be able to resume in-person classes. But with crisis comes opportunity. It has yeah. been a, a phenomenal time. I think there's never been a better time to innovate. It's yeah. a- in
0: many ways, it seemed as though you were uniquely prepared for this challenge in some interesting ways. So I'd love it if you could maybe flesh out for our listeners your background and what you were focusing on right around the time of this perfect storm when you Hopefully, we're in a pretty good position to captain your ship.
9: So I have been at, at, at Kellogg for almost 28 years and always been interested at looking at the intersection between marketing, technology, and innovation. And I've been really interested in how uh, technology can be used to transform businesses. And, and our business is no exception. If you think about it, the business of business schools is ripe for disruption. There's an Indian proverb that I like, which is that under a bright lamp, there is a great darkness. We teach business strategy, but our own business models, our business strategy, our value propositions, our offerings are deeply flawed.
0: I really encourage you to listen to that conversation with Dr. Sani. He's a tremendous thinker and he's doing some really interesting work at Northwestern. We'd love to get him back on the show, but a lot to think about as many of these legacy models are are being forced to rethink themselves to do the economics and the shifting workplace and the shifting demographics that are out there. Lots of profound stuff to pursue here. Another profound area that we love to explore is the power of neuroscience and the power of social emotional learning. I like to say, I get social emotional baby. I was fortunate enough to be joined by Andrea Samadhi, who does a podcast called Neuroscience and Social Emotional Learning. And uh, it's a really interesting topic, really profound intersection between those two spaces. And I'll pick up here with my conversation with Andrea from early in the year. We have this arbitrary distinction between the arts and sciences. We almost think if something's emotional in nature, that there isn't some sort of neurochemical foundation to the concept, and that's actually incorrect. Can you talk a little bit about how the interplay between social-emotional learning and neuroscience has brought some interesting revelations or insights to you?
10: Definitely. We've got the social part of social and emotional. So just think about that, the social brain. Mm -hmm. We've got how to navigate social situations, resolving conflicts, showing respect towards others. So those are all the social skills that we have. And then there's a lot of research out there about the social brain. You just Google social brain. There's a lot out there. When we feel threatened or rejected in a group, we turn to the fight or flight with our brain. There's that whole aspect growing up, what it felt like when you're in middle school and high school, if you didn't belong, just now we can understand that with our own kids or with our students the the way that we feel about world tragedies is how our young students are feeling about inclusion mm-hmm. and thinking about how their brains are shutting down understanding that part with the social these are all skills that we now know we need to teach mm-hmm. uh, in the schools and, yeah. and the curriculum is coming in with that yeah And then we've got the whole emotional side. So emotions come into the brain with a stimulus that triggers the body for a certain response. And then it hits our limbic system, sends messages to our amygdala and then our hippocampus with our memory, it's all connected. So we've now got to understand our own emotions and the emotions of others. Mm -hmm. So there's the social side, there's the emotional side, recognizing and managing our emotions, others, and the ability to cope with frustration, disappointments, and stress. And I actually interviewed Mark Brackett. He was the founder of the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence and his new and most recent book, Permission to Feel. It's so interesting because he talks about how we're not taught to talk about our feelings at all. And he did this activity. He said, show me on your face what anger looks like. And anyone can show anger, but show me on your face what love looks like and the whole room nobody could do it and i was thinking myself i'm like i know what love feels like it's you know unmistakable when you feel yeah. love you know right. but what does that look like i have no idea yeah so when you were talking before about what areas do you think we still need to dive deep into i think we understand the social side but the emotional side we're still it's not you know, been the norm to talk about our feelings out
0: loud. Really interesting stuff there with Andrea. I did see recently that she recorded her 100th episode of Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning. And uh, we here at Trending in Education, we're also fortunate enough to get 100 episodes of Trending in Education published in 2020. So a lot to parse through. As we're getting close to concluding here, though, I wanted to make sure we spent some time listening to Brian Alexander who's a futurist, who focuses on higher ed, wrote a book called Academia Next, which is a fascinating read. He also blogs regularly at brianalexander.org. Great follow on Twitter, LinkedIn, what have you. But I had Brian on three times this year, so congrats to Brian on that. And uh, this was from the first time where we talked about the power of science fiction in thinking about the potential futures and with that, we'll pick up with
11: Brian. I think science fiction is the essential literature for the 21st century. If you're not paying attention to science fiction, you're really not suited for this century. Um, and people in 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 the future's work love SF. We use it all the time. We make some of it. There are SF writers and creators who are full-time professional futurists, and it just it makes all kinds of sense. And Science fiction is in many ways not great at prediction. when it gets something right, it's extraordinary. You look at Jules Verne's uh, From the Earth to the Moon, Around the Moon, which has the moonshot taking off from Florida, landing in uh, a great ocean. I mean, that's pretty good. That's a pretty yeah. good show. You know, there's a book that I, I really enjoyed by John Brunner uh, called The Shockwave Rider*, where in the future people use computers, connected to do each other via phone lines, to, to do gambling, to do communication, to have online learning. For 1970. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. But generally, I, I think it's not so much the prediction, so much as, as it is giving us the habits of mind to think about the future being different, to yep. give us the imaginative power. But it's also not, it's not fantasy. I, I love fantasy. Don't get me wrong. But it's always grounded in the real world. Science that's... fiction is always about that. What if you invent know, a machine? How does it play out in the real world? And that, I think, that intersection is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And there are, there's a small subgenre of science fiction that's always been concerned about education. I mean, you can think about some of the classic novels like Dune or or Ender's Game, which are about yeah. education in a lot of ways. There are a lot mm-hmm. of stories like this. I, I hope if I can scrape you out of the time to push out an anthology of these kind of stories. Yeah. I, I, I think it's crucial just to give you that, that habit of mind to be able to think about the future being different. But also, when I, when I mentioned the world, in some cases, we think about science fiction as considering the world in terms of physics, which is great. What if we invent a spaceship? How does it work on the dark side of the moon? I'm still waiting. For, I'm waiting for my hoverboard. It's been a really know, long time. I know. But at the same time, though, with your hoverboard, science fiction teaches you to think about how this interacts with people. If you have everyone with hoverboards, do we have licenses? Who gets to right. you know, Do we have art forms that emerge, like with skating and skate punk? Uh, right. How do we uh, figure out? Tra- one, one science fiction writer said it's easy to predict the car. The hard thing is to predict a traffic jam. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's the same kind of thing. People often say Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. It's not, but it really is the epicenter of science fiction. It's really, and, and the key thing about that is not just figuring out how to make life, but how to treat it, mm-hmm. you know, how to mm-hmm. respond to it. You know, yeah. that every great science fiction story always takes you back to the human, which right. makes you think what happens to higher education in the year 2030 or the year 2040. Yeah, to come back to these faculty members, these students, these librarians, these academic leaders, the custodians, these adjuncts who make it work, and that's right. who we have to keep coming back to.
0: So much to chew on when you talk to Brian Alexander about the future. It's something I hope we continue to do on this show. And I definitely would encourage you to check out Brian's work, check out his book, Academia Next, and really interesting perspectives on the future of higher education and the future of education in general. As you can see, this is a long show trying to pack everything in. Tremendous conversations really throughout. But I wanted to conclude with our first show of 2020, which was with... David Meerman Scott, who wrote a book called Fanocracy, which is about allowing fans to rule. And he's a really interesting thinker, keynote speaker. would love to get him back again as well, because he talked a lot about the power of live experiences and going to live shows. He's a Grateful Dead fan and has been to many shows over his life, but a really interesting book, really interesting listen. Uh, With that, I'll let David take it away here. So the
6: idea of a fanocracy is when fans rule it's the idea of a true human connection and getting to your prediction thing i've been pretty good at spotting some predictions of the last couple decades so entering the 2000s what i noticed is that marketing on the web is not about banner advertising which is what everyone said it was back then Mm in 1999 uh, or so that transition. I said, no. It's about content. It's about publishing information. Uh, it's about all kinds of creation of content. And I was absolutely right about that. My book, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, was is arguably the best selling marketing book of that decade. Yeah, 400,000 copies in English, it's in 29 languages. And then in in the teens, I saw another trend, and that was the trend around real-time communications on the web. I don't know if you remember this, but Google did not index in real-time until 10 years ago. If you updated a blog post or a website, Google took uh, a whole month sometimes to to surface that new content. And then about 10 years ago, they went real-time. At the Mm -hmm. same time, Twitter was starting to take off and and other social networks. So I identified this idea that we are now entering an era of real-time communications. Interesting, Um, And what I see us entering now is, I think that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications Mm -hmm. at a time when We're really hungry for a a true human connection. The whole online world has become polarizing. People are screaming fake news. There's so much tribalism in the negative related tribalism on the web where politically and socially, people are going into one group and not coming out of it. So I think we're entering an era of a kinder, gentler, more human approach to engagement, both online and offline and so that's where the original ideas around fanocracy birthed um, about five years ago when I was thinking about this. And I really do think that's where we're heading in this next decade of the twenties. So much to chew on
0: from all these conversations we had over the course of this year. I'll keep working on trying to synthesize this stuff and make sense of it and share it back with our listeners. But I thought I'd conclude with David's thinking about the power of fans and the power of listeners and the power of Folks like you, whoever you may be, who's listening to this, we had a really profound and transformative year. We're tr- still trying to sort it out on this end, but we'd love to engage more with you in the conversation heading into 2021. Again, 2020 was a profoundly difficult year, but also one that I think in many ways catapulted us forward forward into future thinking about where learning may go and how we might be able to contribute in that future. So thanks very much for your listenership. Really have appreciated having this platform and look forward to some new ideas and some new concepts that will be rolling out in 2021. So be on the lookout for that and be on the lookout for what's new and emerging in the world of learning. It's been a heck of a ride. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. I'm not the only